Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hello, I'm Jordan Story, Vice President of Retail Operations for Wichita Furniture and Mattress. Designing a cutting-edge retail experience is vital to remaining competitive in the changing world of the home furnishings retail. Storrs is a collaborative technology partner that enables us to get the solutions we need onto our showroom floor and evolve these tools alongside the market demands. Our use of their new web-based customer experience management solution has put vital information in the hands of our retail sales associates and vastly improved the personalization of our customers' experience. Storrs is a true partner committed to the experience retailers deliver in-store and online across our industry. Learn more at storus.com today. Welcome to On the Record. My guest this week is Veronica Schnitzius, president of American Leather. Veronica, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Bill, for having me. Now, you are something of a rarity in the furniture industry, which is a female president of a furniture company. Ironically, an industry whose products are bought primarily by women, um, have companies that are led almost exclusively by men. Um, tell me a little bit about your journey and how um, you overcame some of the barriers that seem to get in the way of, uh, or have gotten in the way of, of other women in that, throughout their careers in this industry. So to give you a little bit of background about myself, uh, I'm an engineer by training manufacturing engineer, to be more specific, mm-hmm. came to the United States. I'm originally from Colombia, so came to the United States 17 years ago to work in another furniture company called the Leather Center as an engineer. After being there for seven months, they went Chapter 7, and I had an opportunity to work with American Leather. So started my career as an engineer, but I was very curious about continuing to grow and learn. So while I was here, I started doing my MBA. So I was working during the day and and I was given a lot of opportunities to do different stuff in the company from industrial engineer to maintenance manager to cutting supervisor to production manager. Then I moved into product development, which was a, a different world where I started my career more on the sales side because we develop a lot of product for private label accounts and you're really kind of selling and being a a bridge between the factory and the customers. So that was the first time I kind of stepped out a little bit of my engineering background and went into a different side of the business. And from then I became the VP of manufacturing and operations and then the COO and a year and a half ago, I step into the role as a president. So I think that what is, has been different for me is that I, I was very lucky to be with the group of people that I work with. Bob Duncan, the founder of the company, has been always very, very supportive of what I do. I don't think he has seen me as a woman or of a man or like from a different country. It's just what you're contributing and how much impact can you make in the business. So I think that being on this specific business where the race or the sex or anything on my age wasn't an issue, was just the results you're giving was a big part of it. How, as, as you're working your way into these different areas of the company, um, 
how do you did you identify where you thought you should go next and how you needed to advance your skill set to create that next opportunity? Because anyone, as you say, whether you're a man, a woman, um, people who are trying to advance themselves in an organization need to have a certain awareness, a certain skill set. They need to be able to communicate upwardly that they have interest and the ability to advance. So what were some of the specific things that you did as you were trying to identify your next growth opportunity to prepare yourself for that and to communicate that um, to your managers and supervisors? So I think one of the things that that I did is I, I wanted to learn more. So I was always interested in learning. So I went to the person that was the VP at that time and say, I want to do an MBA. I think I need to broaden my perspective and learn more about the business. And he goes, absolutely. If you do it on your time, we'll support your development. So then I went to Bob, the founder of the company, and said, I want to do more. I need some leadership. I think my leadership is not as strong as it needs to be. And he said, sure, if you do it on your time, will support it. So I was always going to uh, the hired apps, I guess, you know, the BPs or Bob. I, again, I, I think I was very lucky that from very early on in my career, Bob was really open to have a conversation with me. He was the founder, the CEO. So when you have already the person at the top it, uh, kind of open to listening to you, it, it makes it easier. So I didn't have to go to a lot of layers. But I think that what made the difference is I was always wanting to learn more. So it wasn't necessarily about the title, but I just wanted to know why. Why were the things that we were getting in production were, were done in a certain way? So that's what kind of led me into product development. I was really very frustrated about problems that we were having on the factory due to the lack of processes in product development. So he said to me, why don't you run product development and learn it? I said, sure. You know, <laughs> I, 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 it was like, I, I guess, Bill, it just learning has been something that I have always kind of have. Like, what else? How do you build it? Why? You know, that curiosity. And I was not afraid of saying what it was on my mind. Sometimes that was against me. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just have to be a little careful. But I was like, and so as soon as I'm being ethical and honest, I'm just going to say what's on my mind. And a lot of people, you know, I guess is very afraid. Like, I was the right thing to say to whom the right thing to say. I wasn't. I just didn't care. You know what I mean? In the sense that I wasn't being disrespectful. I just was asking the question. And I think Bob, and again, at that point, the guy that was the VP of manufacturing, his name is George Kinniger. He was like, okay, that's a good question. I don't know. Let me see. You know, I still remember when I met Bob, I tell you a really quick story. I was, you know, an engineer, and then they put me into the cutting supervisor role, and we were getting these leathers, and the leathers were had terrible quality so the buyer came to me and said hey what's your problem with this leather so the, the leather suck and I'm not going to cut it and he goes you have to cut it this is what we have I said no I'm not cutting it you have to tell Bob to come and tell he will have to tell me himself that I have to cut it he goes you don't even know Bob I said I don't care but he's the owner if he has to tell me that's what he wants to put on the product I'll do it so he came and I said I don't think we should do this this is bad quality so from that moment kind of I started building a relationship with him and it kind of makes things much simpler for me to continue to advance from that perspective. It, it sounds like, obviously, you're, you are um, not afraid to take a risk. And, and not a, um, but to, so many employees are afraid to admit a lack of experience or a lack. I mean, you said, as you were explaining, 
you you went and said that your leadership skills were not what you felt they needed to be and you needed to advance. It's so often very difficult for people to admit um, an area where they're not strong. He, Do you think that that comes for you from your engineering background, that there's a, a kind of a, um, a pragmatism, uh, a, you know, a, a desire to always be improving, whether it's a product or yourself? I mean, or is that something that was innate from when you were a child? Where does that come from, that ability to not be afraid to admit an area that needs to be improved? You know, that's an excellent question. I think that it's probably a little bit of a combination of both. I think definitely being an engineer, you kind of get wired in a certain way. I never realized that until I came out of school, like how much all those books and all that science and math does for your brain. I think when you're an engineer, specifically in what I did, which is process primarily, there's always a better way. So if you look at your job that way, why wouldn't you put the mirror on yourself? So for me, it was like I had encounters with certain employee. Maybe I didn't handle it really well. And I felt really bad when I did. And like, oh, my God, that really was terrible. What, how could I have done it better? So that's when I decided to go to that leadership class. And, and I did it actually now. It's going to be 10 years ago. And it was a life-changing opportunity. I went through a whole year of leadership class with an organization here in Dallas I got a business coach, you know, I had a group and we were together every other week and he put a big mirror on myself. And, and from that moment, my whole wire changed. Like I always ask myself, what did I do today? And I could have done it better. And where could I go that I can learn this? Even today, Bill, I feel that it's just starting. Like I, I still am on that organization. My business coach is the same. So I have a business coach now for 10 years. I meet with him every other week. And I'm always asking myself, wow, you know, I'm looking around other people that are doing amazing things. How can I do those kind of stuff? So I, I, to answer that question, surely is a combination of the wire from engineering and I guess who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. As you started to move into other roles, how do you think that engineering background informed the decisions you made as you moved into product development, as you became COO, and even now as president of the company? That's not a traditional path. If you look at where most presidents come from, they usually come from the sales side, sometimes from the marketing side. Um, but it's somewhat uncommon to come through the engineering. How does that, um, that engineering mindset inform the way you look at product development and marketing uh, and even where you see American leather going in the future? I think a big part. So from an engineering perspective, anything that you do is like, what's the current stage? What's the process that we're following? And what do we want to get out of the process? So when you think about product development, for example, I went into the product development group and saying, what is step one to create a new product? So really go, not being afraid of diving in and really understanding what people does to do what we need to do. So really understanding the current stage. Then the curiosity part of like, okay, this is how we do it, but how can we do it better? So challenging kind of the process and the people that is doing it is, okay, I'm doing this in three steps. How can we do it in two steps? And maybe later on in one step. So marketing has been a little different. I, I When I became the president and took over marketing and sales, that one is a little bit more subjective. So some of the engineering has to be challenged because it's not so much like something you can put on a spreadsheet or on a drawing. You're talking about people's 
feelings and behaviors and and people sometimes don't even know why they make certain decisions they just feel it's pretty or they feel it's good but you cannot really put an intangible thoughts so marketing and sales have been more challenging with that wiring so it's, i feel that in the last year and a half i have to almost unwire myself a little bit more from being an engineer and just going what i call the soft side how do i really understand why people make certain decisions that in my logical sense don't feel logical but how do i understand it and and that takes just time and being exposed to leaders that have done that for a long time having a very strong team that understand that world and and today has been a year and a half since i got into that world and i just i have so much to learn so much but it is being exposed not being afraid of saying stupid stuff sometimes right like hey this is what i think and maybe it doesn't make sense but was on your mind uh, and being around people that have done it and i have a lot of experience it it sounds to me like you have a very strategic approach to everything that you do and you develop a strategy and apply a series of steps right. so as you've started to recognize some of the new skill sets and some of the new um mindsets that you've needed to develop around sales and marketing what would you how would you describe your strategy what were your approaches was there a i'm going to do this first and this second um how did you address that i'm guessing from an engineering perspective right i'm going yeah. to figure this out <laughs> yeah so the first thing that i did is really understand what we were doing i'm not going to change anything i don't need to improve i just need to understand what we do who does what and why and what the results are right at the end of the day no matter if it's subjective or not you're doing something for a reason you're selling more you're getting more awareness you're getting more product out the door it's always you want something right you're not just doing things for the sake of it sometimes so the first thing i did in marketing is really who's the team what does everybody do why do they do it do they love what they do are they really on the right side of the bus do they enjoy what they do and once we got that and what results we were getting when i started getting more understanding and challenging the team well this is like a really pretty ad but how much more are we selling well i don't know it's pretty and like okay but why right so what we started to do on marketing and sales is putting more metrics around when we do certain things in social media for example what kind of reaction are we getting is that a positive reaction so we needed to kind of build a baseline where we are and what results we're getting and from that baseline is starting to kind of challenge those baselines to go up so if we're getting 50,000 on the website how can we get to 60 what do we need to do what is people clicking on it what other companies are doing so we're going around the industry and looking at best practices so what other websites are out there are more effective why is people going to for example the natutsi website 100,000 times where they coming to us only 50,000 times well natutsi has better photography or or they're more interactive or you know whatever that is so let's look at the elements that they have different than us and which ones do you think is going to fit our business model and let's try to implement those so we completely revamp the website make it more interactive easier for end consumers easier for our retail customers improve the photography the navigation the engine so it's just one step it's really where are the opportunities break them down in little steps and start kind of building up your your new steps to kind of get it better what are some of the things that you've um learned as as you started to apply some of those metrics and 
uh, started to to try some of those new things. Are there some learnings that you can share with us? Yes, a lot of learnings. <laughs> so uh, one of the biggest learnings I have is the the marketing area. They are more creative, so they don't think in processes. So one big shock for me was like the the ability for them just to create, but not really kind of being able to explain like what it took to get there and why it was important to kind of have some type of process. It doesn't mean that you have to be rigid, but certain things should happen to build into a product. So creating even what we call a, a marketing calendar, what we're doing every month. And even just that whole concept of putting some structure around marketing was a big shock to the group. So that was a big learning for me. And used to people in operations that I give them clear direction or we build clear direction as a team and we follow steps. Marketing, a creative group is very different. So I have to learn how to kind of do that structure in a way that they don't feel there is a structure. So has been a big learning on how to turn that formal process into something more informal, but we're still going some steps. Maybe they don't have to be one, two, three, but it's still one, three, and two. <laughs> so that was, that was a big shock for me. I was like, what do you mean? What is the process? What is the spreadsheet? So that was huge to kind of come and be less structured, but it's almost like, is their idea? But they don't see it as a, as a formalized thing. You had to be, look at it as more creative and it's fun. That was another, another big learning operations were more serious, I guess, like, because we're producing something and it's a process and their times and marketing is more creative, fun. So being able to kind of have more fun. I, I think I have a lot of fun with the operations group, but it's a different type of fun. So just being kind of more relaxed on that environment to how we were getting things done. So, and how today, Bill, you know, retail is changing so fast with, you know, companies like Amazon and Wayfair. So we're not just changing things on the company, but we're changing to an environment that it feels like it's changing every day. So you cannot just stay still. So that was another thing in operations. You set up a process, and if you set it right, right, you can leave that process running for a year or more, you know, years. You don't have to tweak it every month. In marketing, you have to be tweaking things all the time. And that was a big shock. Like, it's like, okay, we have this strategy and we're moving forward. Yes, but the strategy has to be tweaked and evaluate constantly. And I would think that, you, there's also an interactive element with your retailers. I know that many furniture retailers are feel challenged by Wayfair and Amazon and are having to adapt their models. Um, right. Do you find that you have that they rely on you to develop some of those uh, either skill sets or some of those strategies and drive that for them? I think it's a combination. Yes, you know, I think that the small retailers that are being challenged dramatically today by those big companies are looking at to us and saying, how can you help us to be different than they are, right? What can you do from a marketing perspective on your website, on promotions, on, on anything to kind of help us differentiate from those big guys? So all the time having those conversations with them and it varies by market and by customer. Everybody sees it differently. So we have to be able to provide the resources, but also be okay with them using them the way they want to use it. Because what works in Miami doesn't work in New York, doesn't work in San Francisco or San Diego. And the, the retail owner in San Diego, very different than the one in Miami. So the tools that Miami needs 
are very different than San Francisco. So I think for us, is being able to put all those tools out there and let them use that toolbox whenever they need to. An astounding 76% of consumers indicated that they have had a better in-store experience when retail sales associates were armed with high-level technology. Consumers today are more demanding than ever, and they have a right to be. There is a great disparity between companies leading their experiences with technology and those that are falling behind the expected norms. We want our home furnishing retailers to be at the forefront of technology innovation and put over 80,000 hours into product development each year to accomplish just that. Discover our latest technology, customer experience management, and all of our innovative solutions at stores.com today. I'm Caitlin Jaszewski. Thanks for listening. One of American Leather's points of differentiation early on in its history was its speed to market relative to the traditional furniture paradigm. However, when you look at the way that Amazon and Wayfair and other internet retailers have changed consumer expectations, have you found or are you finding that the term speed to market means something different today than it meant when you first joined the company and that that time frame has become more compressed? Actually, it has changed dramatically. So I call it the Amazon effect. So I should get what I want in two hours effect. So, so same day at my home. So I, I think it's changing, but not as fast as you would think, at least on this industry. I still find crazy, amazingly funny how I have a lot of friends that are buying furniture. And I'm like, oh, I, offer my, I ordered my furniture and it's eight weeks. And I was like, are you okay with eight weeks? Oh, yeah, before it was 16. So I think it's changing, but not as fast as you would think it is. I think what 16 weeks was okay, now maybe it's eight weeks. What I find a little interesting is that our lead time is hugely important to us. We do three weeks or less. Our average order to delivery right now is 15 calendar days. It's actually less than 21. We don't promote that, but 95% of the time we do it in 15 days. So I, I push that a lot and retailers are like, yeah, that's not that important. I'm like, well, isn't it? And, and some of it's just changing that mindset of like, no, it is. And, and I think the younger consumer expectations of speed is completely different than the 60-year-old just because they grew up with Amazon. So they never heard about 16 weeks where somebody on their 60s, 50s, Amazon is relatively new, right? Whatever the time is, 10 years since it has been really big. Mm-hmm. So I think they age, the, the more the consumers age, the more you're going to see that effect of lead time being, being important. For us, regardless of what the retailer is asking us, we continue to work on that speed because we feel that is a huge differentiation. We offer a program that we call it Early Bird, and we said it's in your home as a customer in 20 days. So it's out of the factory in 10 days. Our cycle time in the factory is three and a half days. So we continue to tweak the manufacturing process to offer endless possibilities in a very quick lead time. That sounds like quite an engineering challenge. <laughs> it's awesome. I love that. I feel, you know, honestly, Bill, manufacturing is like a symphony, right? You have different instruments and everybody has to play the instrument right at the right time. That's the same thing that, that happens in a manufacturing process is synchronicity. So you just have to make sure that you understand what it needs to happen at what time, and as soon as you synchronize them at the right time, speed is not a problem. Hmm. 
if you were going to project out five years, what do you think is going to be the necessary time frame? If, if it's out of the factory today in 15 days, if we, if we fast forward to 2025, is it five days? Is it four days? Is it, I mean, do you have to inventory so it's overnight? How do you see that evolving over the next several years? I think that I wouldn't think that we have to inventory because I think choice is very important. So for that customer to be able to pick what they want, how they want it is huge. So if we still give the ability to do what they want it, how they want it, my God is if it's out of here in seven to 10 days and it's in their home five days later, you know, less than two weeks at their home, I think it's going to be the expectation. It's just my God. That's interesting. Um, I noticed in one of the interviews that you did, um, you talked about the influence that your position has had on other people in the company. And you talked about another woman uh, in the company who had decided um, to go to college because she was <laughs> inspired by your example. Do you have, do you consciously think about trying to mentor or serve as a role model for other young women in the company as they're trying to move up in their career? Absolutely. For me, you know, and even younger people in the company, but also the employees that have daughters or sons that are not here. So I never, one of the best things that happened to me in my whole career, I was walking to the production floor and this sower that immigrated from Mexico stopped me and said, hey, I just want you to know my daughter decided to go to college and you were a big part of that decision. I go, I, have I met your daughter? She goes, No. <laughs> But I talked to her about how you came from South America uh, and just kind of did what you did. So it kind of showed her that it is possible. So I feel this tremendous responsibility to women and men. It doesn't matter that it has to be a woman, but just to show them that it is possible. I came to this country 17 years ago with $500 and two suitcases and nothing else, no family, nothing. And, and I have to start my life here. And it was a really hard decision because I left my family, which is super important to me, left the country I love, everything that I love because I saw an opportunity to grow and learn and being able to go back and do things in my country, which I do today. But, but I want to show them this younger generation, our employees, their families, that if you work hard and you dedicate yourself, you can do anything. Have there been some initiatives that you've taken at the company to kind of institutionalize some of that? Um, you know, yeah, to, so to we, we, ha we have a scholarship fund for the employees. So employees of the kids of the employees can go to college and we have a scholarship fund that the company supports. Anytime an employee comes to me, Bill, with wanting to go to college, we'll support it. So I always tell them, look, just, just, I just need you. I cannot go to college for you. I cannot <laughs> register in the school, right? But if you have enough of a desire to do it, I will make sure that it happens, no matter what we have to do. It's kind of sad that not as many people, it, a lot of people want to be a manager, for example, but when they're like, oh, what does it really take to be a manager? Hmm, maybe I'm not that interested. Right, like when you have to be available, like no matter what time it is, what day it is, going to school at night. Believe me, I was going to classes from 6 to 9.30 after working from 6 in the morning until 6 p.m. But, but you make those sacrifices for the long term. And, and this thing that walking the talk and showing, hey, it's hard, but you can do it. 
So I talk to the employees all the time. Anybody that, that wants to come to my office, I always say my door is always open. I will talk to everybody. Honestly, Bill, I probably need to make a bigger effort to, to carve more time. I, I travel quite a bit and not in the office sometimes as much, but just to really make the point. I have tell people and I'm very open, but it's not, I'm not doing anything like super formal. It's very informal, a conversation, anybody wants to do it. But, you know, would, you know I would love to do like, probably more on that front. Another learning. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I would guess that the, the demands on your time as you've moved up through each of these roles become greater and greater. Yeah. Um, and then deciding, how do you decide what not to do? I, I know that that's a big issue for so many executives. Um, one of the real keys, and I've read this in a lot of leadership books, is learning how to say no and what to say no to. How do you decide what not to do and what to turn down? Oh, well, that's a great question. <laughs> I'm still learning how to do that better. Honestly, Bill, I, I used to feel like like sorry or like sad that I couldn't do everything. But what I realized is by saying yes to a lot, I was saying no to doing what I was doing really good. So I always have to look at my day and say, okay, what, do, what are the goals, what the company needs to accomplish? Does this meeting really going to get us to a better place? No. So as much as I would love to help, I cannot do it. So I get asked to be on different boards or different organizations. And I, I say now no a lot more than I did three years ago. I used to say yes to anything. And I realized I was just not being as effective on some stuff because I to 10. And I always going to have my number one priority is my daughter, Hannah. She's a seven-year-old. She's the love of my life. So she, uh... anything related with her is my number one priority. You know, my husband, my family, uh, the job, and then I love, and I'm an athlete, so making sure that I have a, a workout routine and I have time to work out and do my races is my priority, you know. So just making sure those things are on my calendar first, and then I do other stuff uh, apart from that. I'm curious, does your daughter have a sense of what you do for a living, so many times children just think of mom or dad as mom or dad. Um, you mentioned that she's important. Does I mean do do you bring her to work? I know there's the you know bring your daughter to work day. Does she know that mom is the president of <laughs> uh, a major furniture manufacturing company? She does. So I have brought her here a lot, actually more in the last probably year and a half. She's just turned seven, so she's still very little. But but she has been coming here since she was a baby and in the last year and a half I really have made an effort to like every other month like a Friday afternoon like somebody drops her off from school or I go and pick her up after school and she's like mommy I really like that you're the president and I said Hannah do you know what that means she goes well you're the boss I'm like it's much bigger than being the boss you're responsible for a lot of people so it's like more they're my boss not I'm their boss so I think she she kind of gets the idea that, that this is a big company and there's a lot of people that, that I work with, but I don't know yet that she really realized what that means. My biggest thing, Bill, with her as a woman is showing her with my actions that she can do whatever she wants as soon as she works hard and is ethical about it. So I try to kind of tell her, look, Hannah, you're and your mom and a wife and, and running this company 
I, I do triathlons or marathons. Like this kind of stuff is still very important to me is you just have to work hard. Things just don't happen because you are Hannah, right? Things happen because you wake up at five in the morning to work out or you work, you know, more efficient or you go to school. So trying to show her all the time that if you work hard, you can get things is a big mission for me as a mom. Would you like her to be in the furniture business someday? <laughs> no, I haven't thought about it. If that's what you do and she's passionate about it, I just want her to be in a FL bill that she wakes up in the morning and say, oh, I can't wait to get there, whatever that is. If it's furniture, great. If it is, you know, clothing or if it's she wants to be a nonprofit, I know it sounds like what every parent, but I, you know, her happiness is very important. And I think that if you are in a place that you love what you do, you're going to be successful. Great. Well, it sounds like she's, she's getting great training in things <laughs> that are really important in life. I um, hope. I, <laughs> and I really would love to know how you work all of that in and still find time for working out. That is just amazing. Honestly, Bill, I, I, I started this, this, journey of transformation as a person like I said 10 years ago primarily when I went to this leadership class and what I realized is that when I'm working now I'm actually more efficient and more effective so I make it a big point to wake up early like an early riser don't talk to me after nine o'clock I'm not that friendly and more <laughs> four o'clock in the morning I'm up and ready to go so I get up early I do my workout and it's kind of like my time so I usually work out by myself or a group of friends running or something but it's usually my time there's my head and it makes me like have a much you know stronger day when I don't I used to not work out I felt that I was more sluggish and not as clear in my head so it's more like my therapy right like that's the way I use my time to kind of get some therapy well uh, I'm glad that you were able to make time for us and I'm glad of all of the things that you say no to that we were not one of them <laughs> this was fun Good. so you know thank you for taking yeah, the time um, today i really appreciate it of course it. thank you bill i hope you have a great day you too take care now <laughs>